0: Good afternoon. It's good to be with you all. I'm very grateful for the opportunity to come and speak to you. It's a privilege here. It's an honor really to be, be here. I thank uh, Brother Tom Askell and Founders Ministry. Thank you very much for the invitation. What is man? That's what we're talking about. That's what we're considering. What does God say? What man is? We're each made in his image, But when does that begin? Well, obviously it began back in the garden, right? God made man in his own image. But not just when did God make mankind, but when does God make each man, each woman? When does that happen? And where we're going to be spending most of our time is, and why does it matter? What are the implications of that? What what are the ramifications for us? What do we do in light of that, in light of what Scripture says? What are the implications for us? And this is a very serious matter, as are all the matters we're talking about, that our society is dealing with, that we as a church, we're called to be the salt and the light and to be the answer to these problems. We are the solution. By the grace of God, he's given us the answers. This is a life and death issue. And as we consider it, I want us to consider God's word. That's where we're going to be spending most of our time. Isaiah 66:2. but on this one will I look. God says, On him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. That's what I want to do. I want God to look at me. I want to have a poor and a contrite spirit. I want to be humble and repentant and tremble at his word. So that's what I invite us all to do today as we open up God's word and see what he has to say about the subject, that we would come in humility. We would come with repentance where we need that and that we would come trembling at his word and saying, yes, Lord, I obey. I'll obey what you say. When does human life begin? Well, Scripture spends a lot of time talking about this. This is really all throughout Scripture and I could, could do the entire talk just on this, about when does life begin. But I think I'm talking to a lot of people who already agree with me on that, who already understand what Scripture says about that, and that is that life begins at fertilization. Or as Scripture puts it, life begins at conception. God talks repeatedly throughout Scripture about people being born, but he also says they were conceived and born, conceived and born. Conception is when our life begins. and I use the term fertilization in our society because several decades ago, people started doctors and medical institutions started trying to redefine the term conception to be at implantation instead of at when the sperm and the egg come together. So that's why, to be more precise, I use the term fertilization. It's fertilization that's where the male gamete and the female gamete, the sperm and the egg come together, and from that moment, you have a flash of zinc, light you can see under a microscope. A new life has begun. It has its own unique DNA, Self-directing, self-growing, all that it needs, all that he or she needs, I should say, at that very moment is nutrients, oxygen, yes, even oxygen from the moment of fertilization, and a safe place to live and to grow. The same things that all of us, much larger, more-celled organisms need, more larger human beings, they need the same things that we need. That's when life begins at fertilization. You you know, just a quick refresher, God uses the same terms throughout Scripture to refer to born children as to children inside their mother's womb, pre-born children. In the Hebrew, he does this, and in the Greek, God does this. He uses the same terminology, whether the child is in the womb, whether it's Jacob and Esau in the womb, or whether it's children outside the womb, Whether whether it's John the Baptist in the womb, or whether it's. Jesus lying in a manger. It's the same terms that God uses to describe both. In Scripture, we see Samson's mom. God talks to Samson's mom, and he tells her, your son is going to be a Nazarite from the womb. Well, well, maybe it means from the moment of exiting the womb. No, no, no. God tells her, he says, you shall not drink any alcohol or eat anything unclean while you're pregnant. Why? Because he's a Nazarite in the womb. Samson is. That's how God talks about the preborn, the same way as the born, in terms of our value. Exodus 21:22. God tells us how our lives should even be protected, and what kind of justice even a preborn child deserves. Exodus 21:22 says, "If men fight and hurt a woman with child, if men fight and hurt a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet no harm follows, he shall surely be punished, the one who caused a premature birth, he shall surely be punished accordingly as the woman's husband imposes on him. Stop right there. We see there's some kind of something going on, some kind of disagreement, men striving, and somehow one of them or both of them hurt this woman with child. She gives birth prematurely, and there's an automatic fine upon the one who does that. There's a fine upon that one. Why? Because premature births are not good for moms. They're not good for babies. There's an automatic fine. But it goes on. It says, but if any harm follows, then you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. You see, it says there, but if any harm follows, well, that begs the question, if any harm follows to whom? Any harm to the mother or any harm to the child? Yes. Either one, if harm follows, if harm happens to either one of them, then there is justice. And you know why it doesn't say, well, if it's harm to the mother, it's this justice, or it's harm to the baby, it's this justice? Because it's the same justice that they both deserve as victims of this crime. They both get justice, and it's the same justice because their lives are equally valuable, made in, e- equally valuable to God because they're equally made in the image of God. And that's why they get what we would call in in legal terms, the equal protection of the laws. That's what God gives them there. More on that later. So scripture makes it abundantly clear. Life begins, human life begins at fertilization. Okay, life begins at fertilization. What does that have to do with me? What does that mean to me? What are my duties in light of that? Well, here's here's the top one. From the moment of fertilization, each of us, we're called to love our neighbor as ourselves. From the moment of fertilization, we have a new neighbor to love as ourselves from that very moment. In our country, we have a lot of pre-born neighbors who are desperately, desperately in need of our love. And not just the words be warm and filled, but love. Love, real love because abortion runs rampant in our land. This upcoming Sunday is the 50th anniversary of Roe versus Wade, in three days from now. That's in three days. And many people think, there are many states now after the Dobbs decision to overturn Roe versus Wade, many people think that, okay, now abortion has been ended. But that's not true. And maybe you're thinking, oh, well, well, I know it's not ended. I mean, I know there's lots of states, but Democrat states, the blue states, it's not ended there. No, it's not ended at all. Across this country, every single preborn child may still be murdered before birth legally. And I'm not just talking about the Democrat states, I'm talking about states the pro life movement is claiming are now abortion free. States like Arkansas, Idaho, Kentucky, Louisiana, Mississippi, Montana, Tennessee, Texas, Utah, Wyoming, and others, they're not abortion-free. Oh, the abortion clinics, many of them have closed. There's actually a number of them they are still staying open, even they're not, they're not performing abortions, they're, they're teaching mothers how to do their own. And even if they don't go to a clinic to find out how to do that, they're going online, and they're learning how to do that, and they're ordering the pills by mail from other states and from other countries, or they're looking up recipes for a do-it-yourself abortion. And there's abortions happening all across the country right now, and they're doing it at home. And according to the New York Times, from just a couple months ago, they said, quote, as states banned or restricted abortion this summer, this last summer, the number of American women ordering abortion pills from overseas jumped significantly enough to offset most of the drop in legal abortions. More recently, the New York Times has said they believe that abortion numbers since Dobbs have dropped about 2%. percent See, you you probably heard, oh no, there's all these states where there's no abortions happening. Well, no, reported abortions, or very few reported abortions. These abortions aren't reported. So we're claiming a victory because, oh, well, the the place that children are being aborted has changed. The people maybe doing the abortion has changed, but babies are still being murdered across our country. And now two weeks ago, the FDA has even changed the rule to where now these pills can be dispensed at Walgreens and CVS, CVS, at pharmacies. And Walgreens and CVS have said they're going to do it. And many states allow for that. We've got to get our heads out of the sand. Roe versus Wade is dead, but abortion is alive and well, and babies are still dying in our country. We have a lot of pre-born neighbors in need of our love. So how do we do that? Well, the pro-abortion side, they're united. The pro-choice side is united. They're united. Abortion on demand, from birth taxpayer-funded, no apologies, period. That's why you see them voting in lockstep on that issue. But our side is not united. We should be, especially those of us who call ourselves Christians, we should be united. We have God. We have a, his clear standard. We have his word. But are we abiding by it? Many of us are compromising Many have compromise on what God says. We must stop being a house divided. We must unify with one voice behind what God says about this issue. We cannot expect the hearts and minds of the lost to be changed until the hearts and mind of the found, the Christians, until our hearts and minds are submitted to God's word. So that's what I call us to do today. So what does God say? Well, before I read you a lot of scripture, I want to read you something else. If you're okay with this, can I read you some law? Is that okay? I'm a lawyer, I like to read law, but hopefully you'll, you'll appreciate it. And we're in the state of Florida, so I'm gonna read some Florida law, but I could read wherever state you're from, and it's basically the same thing. Maybe the wording is slightly different, but it's just basically gonna say the same thing and have the same effect. Here's some Florida law says, the unlawful killing of a human being when perpetrated from a premeditated design to affect the death of the person killed is murder in the first degree and constitutes a capital felony. All right, so that's your basic murder law in the state of Florida here. Basically, what it's saying is that it's murder in the first degree. If you want to kill someone, you plan to kill someone, and you do kill someone. That's Murder that's murder. Then the Florida law says another place, says whoever commits a criminal offense defined by another statute, stay with me, and thereby causes the death of an unborn child commits a separate offense. All right, so you cause the death of an unborn child, that's also a crime. An unborn child means a member of the species Homo sapiens at any stage of development, at any stage of development, who is carried in the womb. That's what Florida law says. That's pretty good. Then it goes on, it says, the punishment for a separate offense under this subsection, talking about separate offense of killing an unborn child, is the same as the punishment provided under this code or other statute for that conduct had the injury or death occurred to the mother of the unborn child. You hear that? So if you have an unborn child who's injured or killed, the punishment that the prosecutor and the juries can consider is the same as if that same harm had happened to the mother. Does that sound familiar? That sounds a whole lot like Exodus 21 that we just read. So far, so good. Except, continuing to read Florida law here, quote, This subsection does not permit the prosecution of a woman with respect to her unborn child. So, wanting to kill an unborn child, planning to do it, and carrying it out is murder under Florida law, but mothers explicitly may not be prosecuted for doing that in Florida, and in your states as well. What do you think about that? Well, hold on, hold on, hold on. Actually, that's the wrong question. That's the wrong question. It's not what we think about that. The question is, what does God think about that? Well, let's, let's go find out. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17 For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality, nor takes a bribe. He administers justice for the fatherless. That's who our God is. He administers justice for the fatherless. Well, who are the fatherless? Well, orphans like children whose parents have both died. But you know who else are the fatherless in our country? Children who are in their mother's wombs. In our country, those children are fatherless. We're speaking in legal terms here about justice, administering justice. That's what God does. In legal terms, those children are fatherless. The mother has the absolute right to cause their death under law. And the mother has, I'm sorry, the father has zero legal ability, or legal standing to in any way stand in her way or stop that. These are fatherless children in our country. God administers justice for them, and he does not show partiality. What is partiality? Well, you'll see from the context of the other verses I read, but here's just very quick. Partiality means you're judging someone not based upon... Their actions, or their conduct, or their works—you're basing people, you're, you're judging someone's case based upon some external, some subjective factor. That's partiality. It's like, oh well, well you're weak and you're strong, so of course I'm going to go with you. Or, or you're beautiful and you're not so beautiful, so I'm going to go with you. You're powerful. You're a man. You're a woman. You have this color skin. You have that color skin. That's partiality in judgment. God hates it. He is not partial in judgment. God commands our civil officials, our civil authorities as well, to do justice and to show justice to the fatherless. And he forbids them from showing partiality. Deuteronomy chapter 1 verse 16. Then I commanded your judges at that time saying, "Hear the cases between your brethren and judge righteously between a man and his brother or the stranger who is with him. You shall not show partiality in judgment." That's what God says. Levit- Leviticus 19:15. "You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor nor honor the person of the mighty. In righteousness you shall judge your neighbor." In our country, the pro-abortion side, they're saying, you know, they've been saying, well, it's a clump of cells, it's not a human being. Now they're saying, okay, it is a human being, but the mom's bigger. The mom's wishes and whims and desires trumps the life of the child. Might makes right. God says, you shall not honor the person of the mighty in judgment. When it comes down to judge, you judge based on the facts, upon the works, upon the actions, on the conduct, not whether someone's mighty or not. You judge, you do not be partial to the poor. Psalm 82, 2, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Selah. Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deuteronomy twenty-seven, nineteen: Cursed, cursed is the one who perverts the justice due the stranger, the fatherless, and widow and all the people shall say amen you may not have let me read that again just to make sure you heard it, it said cursed is the one cursed is the one who perverts the justice due the stranger the fatherless and widow and all the people shall say amen, amen. hey all right this is what god commands god god is Laying out curses upon people, and he calls for us to say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. That's what we're to do when we open God's word. We're to say, yes, Lord. I may not understand it. I may not feel like it. I may feel awkward about it. That's not the way I would do it. I don't, his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. We open up his word, and we read it, and we say, amen. Yes, Lord. Even if I don't feel like it. We've got to say amen. We must not pervert the justice due the fatherless. But we have perverted it. But we have perverted it. Isaiah 1.16 says, Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless. Okay, we've perverted justice. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Seek justice. Defend the fatherless now. Okay, repent and obey. And this isn't just about justice, although that would be enough. Because God loves justice. The Psalms say that justice and righteousness are the foundations of his throne. Justice is why Christ went to the cross. If God didn't care about justice, there would be no cross. That's why he went there, because the penalty for your sin, the wages of your sin, had to be paid. Someone had to pay them, and he paid them, that justice might be satisfied, because God loves justice, and he cannot be unjust. And we shouldn't be unjust either. But this isn't just about justice, it's also about love. Matthew 19, 19 says, you shall love your neighbor As yourself. And that's not the first time God said that. You can go back to Leviticus 19.18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord, God says. James chapter 2, verse 8. Listen to this. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. If you say, I love my neighbor as myself, but you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. This is about the second greatest commandment. This is about the golden rule. Matthew 7 12, therefore, whatever you want men to do to them, do also do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. What are the laws that protect your life? You should want those laws to protect other people's lives the same, born or unborn. Can your, now that you're born, can your mother walk in here and murder you and there be no penalty? She can't even be prosecuted for that? Of course not. That's ridiculous. Well, it's also ridiculous that she can do that with no legal consequences whatsoever. She can't even be prosecuted before you were born. And if you love your neighbor as yourself, you should want that child to be as equally protected as you. And it's not just to prosecute the mothers. No, 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 no. Hopefully, we would never prosecute anyone. It's to deter them. And this is what is loving about this, not just for the baby. This is what's loving toward the mother. How loving is it when we tell women it's legal to murder your baby? How loving to the mother is it for us to do that? That's not loving. That's not loving to her. I can't tell you how many women I've heard or how many women that have told me, they've said, Bradley, thank you for what you're doing. We're so glad for what you're doing. I wish it had been a crime for me because then I never would have done it. So it's not just about loving the baby as yourself, it's about loving the mother as well. And God also tells us, just add on to everything else, God tells us to be subject to the governing authorities, of course, under his law. Well, the governing authorities in our country, we don't have a king or a dictator or a Caesar. We have the U.S. Constitution as our highest governing authority. The supreme law of the land is what it says. Well, what does it say on this issue? In the 14th Amendment, it says, no state shall deny to any person within its jurisdiction, that is, within the state, the equal protection of the laws. No state shall deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. But we are. If we believe a fetus is a person, we are denying them the equal, equal protection of the laws. And you know what? We have been, not just for 50 years, but even before Roe versus Wade we were, Our laws then provided immunity for mothers with regard to the abortion of their own children. And you know what? The Supreme Court in Roe v. Wade actually picked up on that. And they, they said, basically, well, let me just read you what they said. The Supreme Court, in the majority opinion, not in some dissent, not in some concurrence, not in a separate, in the majority opinion of the court in 1973, Texas was there saying, a fetus is a person, they deserve equal protection, and the court said, not so fast. You're not providing them equal protection. They said, quote, there are inconsistencies between 14th Amendment status, as a person, and the typical abortion statute. If the fetus is a person, why is the woman not a principal or an accomplice? Why isn't she a criminal for her part? When she does it knowingly and voluntarily. If the fetus is a person, continuing to quote the court, if the fetus is a person, may the penalties be different? Because the penalties were lower in states for killing an unborn child than for killing a born child. And the Supreme Court picked up on that. They said, hey, Texas, Georgia, the two, two states being considered, and all the other states that were basically the same. The court said, Actions speak louder than words. You're not treating them like a person. We're not going to treat them like a person. And that's how we got Roe v. Wade. God's word is clear, though. He says, do not be partial in judgment. Or in legal or in constitutional terms, do not deny to any person the equal protection of the laws. Do you agree with that? Christians should be united on this. Do you agree with it? If you do, wonderful. But I have some news for you. Because the pro-life movement is working against what you believe. And when I talk about the pro-life movement, I'm not talking about everybody who calls themselves pro-life. Don't get me wrong. I've called myself pro-life most of my life. No, I'm not talking about, everybody calls themselves pro-life, average pro-life person doesn't even know what the pro-life organizations and pro-life leaders are even doing on this issue. I'm talking about the pro-life organizations, pro-life leaders, when I talk about the pro-life movement. I was at a, uh, I was at a training event last year, that was, or maybe it was a year and a half ago, anyways, um, and it was for pro-life organizations and or pro-life leaders, and they were talking about other subjects too, but they said, here's the thing, everybody. Uh, the training event was about how to deal with the media. And they said, okay, you know, when you're dealing with the media, facts and figures are nice, but you know what's really great? You want to have a narrative. You want to have a narrative. You want to have a story that people can latch onto because people remember that, they relate to that. It's good to have a story. Like David and Goliath. In your story, you want to have a hero, and you want to have a villain. And then there's some conflict. And that's your story when you're dealing with the media. Uh, this was a, for, for lawyers dealing with legal issues. You want to have this story when you're dealing with, when you're talking to the media. Well, and, and when you're deciding, when you're coming up with a narrative and deciding who's going to be the villain in the story, you don't want it to be someone who's going to be really sympathetic. You don't want to humanize that person. You want to, this isn't their words, but this is what they're saying, basically. You want to demonize. So the villain, the best villains are nameless, faceless institutions like the abortion industry, or society, or the government, or the Supreme Court, or Planned Parenthood, or maybe the nameless, faceless abortion doctor, right? Those make the best villains, but never make the woman the villain because they're not the heroes in the story, but they're not the villains. They're the victims when it comes to abortion. I had a conversation with a pro-life leader on Twitter here recently, and this is what she said, quote, the majority of women have abortions because they have been pressured into it directly or indirectly, or because they feel they have no other choice. Most women are victims of the abortion industry and of a society that tells them they need an abortion in order to exist in it. She goes on, in fact, in all my eight-plus years of activism, I have yet to meet a woman who genuinely, willingly aborted her baby. And that is the mantra, not just of this woman, but of the pro-life movement. Well, I don't even have to read you my response. I'm going to read you the response of four women who responded to her who are not pro-life, they are not abolitionists, here's what they said. Quote, hmm, or says HMM, is that, (laughs) hmm. I genuinely and willingly terminated my pregnancy once upon a time, and it was one of the best choices I've ever made. The pressures you speak of are that not everyone wants to be pregnant. That's it. That's all there is to it. Another woman said, I willingly aborted too. I haven't a single regret. Yet another woman said, The majority of women have an abortion because it's their choice. This is a classic anti choice tactic of infantilizing women. And then the fourth woman said, and there are many, many more, I'm trying to narrow it down. One of them said, Just why are you infantilizing women? Because this is the classic argument of the pro-life movement, all women are victims. Not just some women are victims, because some women are victims. But no, no, they say all women are victims. And what do they mean by saying, why are you infantilizing women? What? There's actually a legal doctrine called the infancy defense. And that is, if someone wants to, get, wants to commit a crime, plans to commit a crime, and does commit a crime, but they're an, legally an infant, then they're not criminals. And this is typically, the, this goes back way before our country even existed from the common law. Basically, seven years old or un, under, hey, if a child does something, right? I mean, my, my little children, they steal stuff all the time, okay? But they're not criminals because they're infants. Well, the pro life movement treats all women as infants. Even when they want to commit the crime, plan to commit it, and do commit it, no prosecution whatsoever, they're not criminals, they're, why, why are infants excluded? Because they're too weak, and they're too ignorant to really know what they're doing. That's how the pro-life movement is treating women. And that's ex- insulting. And you know, I hope like me, you're against abortion exceptions like rape and incest, Because two wrongs don't make a right, we shouldn't respond to one violent act by committing another violent act against a third party, an innocent third party. That's not the solution. The solution is come alongside these women, help them, be with them, turn something beautiful, I'm sorry, turn something ugly into something beautiful. That's the answer. So I'm against the rape and incest exception. But there's a much, 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 much larger exception that the pro-life movement as a whole supports. And that is mother-induced abortion. And that's what is exploding in our country right now. It's the biggest exception of all, and that's for it to be legal for the mother to do it. And I've been a part, and many people have been a part, of putting forward bills to abolish abortion across the country for several years now, for about the seventh year. And yet every time our bills get introduced guess what happens? They get killed. Those bills get killed. Bills in Oklahoma, bills in Texas, bills in pro-life states are being killed. And who's killing them? The pro-life organizations, the pro-life politicians. Again, the average pro-lifer has no idea that this is even going on. But that's what the pro-life movement, the leaders of it, are doing. They're killing bills that would provide equal protection of the laws. In Louisiana last year, I got to help write a bill for that state, got to go testify to a committee. The committee, they voted in favor of it seven to two, passed it. It was going to the House to provide equal protection of the laws. But in the intervening one week between passing committee and getting to the House floor, the pro-life movement, pro-life lobby, the pro-life establishment got on the move. And the few hours before that bill was to be debated and voted on, 77 pro-life organizations published a letter that they had signed that said, no woman should ever be prosecuted for her own abortion that she commits. Ever, no exceptions, no matter how heinous or willful the act was. So I encourage you, don't take pro-life organizations and politicians at face value. A lot of times, when I walk into someone's office, I'm like, hey, will you support this bill? And they start with, well, I, listen, hey, I'm very pro-life. It's like, oh, no. This is, okay, I know where this is going. Now, again, it's not about the label. It's not about the label. But those who are killing bills of equal protection have turned that term into a mockery of what I meant when I said pro-life. I meant no abortion Equal protection, every life made in the image of God, every life equally protected. No partiality. That's not what they mean. In fact, they've said that we, the ones who support equal protection, that we're not pro-life. That's what they've said about us. So I call myself an abolitionist. Because I want to see abortion abolished legally ended for everyone, to protect every baby. But Bradley, you just want to criminalize women. No, no, it's not about singling anybody out. The pro-life movement is the one who wants to single someone out, single two-someones out. They want to single out the mother, and justify the one who acts wickedly, and they want to single out the child, the innocent child, and condemn them by denying them protection. Isn't there a verse about justifying the wicked and condemning the righteous? Proverbs 17, 15 says, "'He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the just, "'both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord.'" And the pro-life movement wants to do both of those things. What we want is for every case to be judged on a case-by-case basis, just like all of us get, just like we get. Pro-life movement wants to prejudge all of these cases and say, nope, every woman's a victim. But wait, let's look into maybe, nope, they're all victims. You know what it's called when you prejudge cases before hearing the facts? That's called Prejudice. And when you prejudge based upon someone's identity instead of on their actions, that's called prejudice. That's called partiality. No, abolitionists, we want to judge each case on a case-by-case basis. And no, not retroactively. No one's saying go back 50 years. And No, no one's saying that. That would be unjust. That would be illegal. That'd be unconstitutional. Can't do that. No one wants to do that. But what about mothers forced into it? You know what? The law already has defenses there for people who are forced to commit crimes. It's called a duress defense, or a coercion defense, depending on your state. The law already, right, if, if you're driving down the road and someone jumps in and puts a gun to your head and says, take me to rob the nearest convenience store, and you drive them there, you're not a getaway driver. You're under duress. The same thing for mothers who are forced to do things. Or what about mothers who don't know what they're doing? Again, the law already has provisions. You know what, we've had homicide laws for a long time. In fact. Genesis 9, we have homicide laws. Okay, we've got a pretty well-developed body of law around homicide, and there's a defense called mistake of fact. If you don't know what you're doing, then there's a defense for that. But why do some people not know what they're doing? Many of them do. I just read you quotes from women just on this one Twitter thread who did. Many of them do, but for those who don't, why do they not? Why do they believe that they're doing nothing wrong. It may have something to do with the fact that the pro-life bills that keep getting introduced and passed tell women that they're doing nothing wrong. There's no legal consequences. But the law is a tutor, and so how do we teach them that this is a life? How do we teach them the truth of what they're doing? by changing the law, and this isn't just about the law, this also relates to the gospel. You know, it's human nature to blame other people for our own sins, isn't it? We have 10 children at home. Every day, okay, there's this, no, he did what he made me, what he told me to do it. What, yeah, but was it you who did it? Right, have you had these conversations with your children? Well, Adam, this woman you gave me, God, or Eve, the serpent, society, the abortion industry, my parents, my peers, my boyfriend. It's human nature to try to excuse our own sin. And we are pressured by other people and other factors. We are tempted by other people. But unless we have a gun to our head, figuratively speaking, or literally speaking. We're responsible for our own actions. You know, studies have discovered the number one motivation for sin. You know what it is? I'm sorry. Man, just messed up my own punchline. <laughs> studies have discovered the number one reason for abortion. Sin. Sin. God hates the hands that shed innocent blood. That's what he says. He doesn't say, I hate the hands of men who shed innocent blood. No, it, it applies to everybody. We just refuse to believe that and admit that because in our society we're basically good, right? We don't believe in original sin in America. We believe everybody's basically good, and we refuse to admit, even many Christians, that we we had, that we live in a country where at least one in every five wom- women have either hired an abortionist to kill their child or they've done it with ordered a pill and done it themselves. But that's where we live. That's why God and Isaiah. One, it's like, your hands are covered with blood. Don't bring your worship to me. I'm, I'm, you know, deal with that. Because not only were our hands covered with blood, he says, and you're denying the justice. That's the problem with this generation. And when I say this generation, I don't mean Gen Z or millennials or whatever. I mean this generation, everybody we live among, this perverse and adulterous generation, We, everybody... I don't have any problems. Everybody else has problems. It's all just somebody else's fault. It's all external factors for why things are wrong. And listen, my heart breaks for the mothers who have done this. And my heart breaks for the fathers who went along with it or who even encouraged it. Maybe set it up. And there's very likely even a number in this room right now that have been part of that and have been involved with the abortion, the murder of a child. We don't need to be telling those people that they're victims. If you tell someone that their sin actually isn't their fault and that they are a victim, you are telling them that they don't need to repent. You don't repent for being a victim. You repent of being a perpetrator. Here's what we need to be telling them. Here's what I tell you. Look your sin in the face. Admit it. Admit what you've done. Admit that you have murdered your own child. Admit what you've done. And then, don't just keep looking at yourself, though. Don't keep looking at your sin. Look at the cross. Look at Christ. You know, he gets so much glory because he paid the price for child murderers that gives them more glory. When we treat our sins seriously, we treat the cross more gloriously. But only don't even even move past. Look at the cross, but then look at the tomb. Look at the tomb. The tomb is empty. Why? Because... The justice of God was satisfied by the payment of Christ for the penalties that you owed. That's gone. Your sins have been forgiven. Your sins have been forgiven if you come confessing them, repenting of them, admitting them. But if you say, Well, I'm just a victim, well, he died for sinners. Jesus said, five, Luke 5:32, 5, Jesus answered and said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. We have to admit what we've done. But we get to rejoice that it is finished. He's paid the penalty for us. You know what? I know this is unpopular. When you go out there, it may sound great in here, but you go out there, oh, you're an extremist. Oh, you just hate women, right? They throw that around a lot for pretty much any, almost everything that's being said at this conference. By the way, you you take it out there. (laughs) It's like that's hate. God says it's love. They call evil good. They call good evil. That's why we have to stay close to the standard. And we don't need to be going out there worrying about, well, is, is this going to make us lose political points? Or boy, I sure want to gain and maintain control of the federal government. That should be a higher priority. No. You know what, we just leave that to God. We just be faithful, do his will, love our neighbor as ourselves, and trust him with the outcome. That will cure a lot of anxiety. Don't worry about that. Don't be anxious about that. Just do what God says and trust him. Take your salt that you have at home, you have in your church, you have in this conference, and take it out there and say these things. Be salty. You're the light of the world. Don't hide it under a bushel. Take it out there and say it. Our society's not ready for it though. Yeah, that's right. And it's not gonna be ready if you continue to compromise for another 50 years. You can't compromise the truth and expect society to change. You've got to go out there and you've got to proclaim the truth. So this is simple. There's two choices. Either what is in the womb is just a clump of cells, merely a product of conception, has no transcendent value, and it can be removed and disposed of like toenail clippings. Or the little boy or the little girl who is in the womb is a human being from fertilization with a soul who will live forever, made in the very image of God himself, conceived in sin, but legally innocent under man's law, whom whom no one has the right to murder, and all who do are subject to the justice that God demands our civil government impose." That's the two choices. Either it has no moral value or he or she has just as much value as you or me, and we should be protecting them by the same laws that protect you and me. This is a human life. It should be illegal for anyone to intentionally destroy this life. We've got to tremble at his word. Where we've been consistent, praise God for his grace Upon us, opening our eyes, removing the scales. Praise God for that. Where we've been inconsistent, repent. Repent. Have a poor and contrite spirit. Be humble and repent and tremble at His word. Repent and obey. Learn to do good. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless. Believe that a fetus is a person. And then act like it by opposing partiality and by calling for these little boys and these little girls to have the equal protection of the laws that you enjoy. That is how you love your preborn neighbor, your fellow image bearer of God, as yourself. Thank you.